Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is episode 221. It's in the classic Spotlight series, Thoughts on C.S. Lewis. You probably recall, maybe a year, year and a half ago, I did a bit of a, a show on, on, on fantasy writers, and he was one of them, so we had a small segment in about him. This will be a lot broader about all the different facets of who C.S. Lewis was, because he, he's a pretty, I, I guess you could say, a complicated fellow, but I don't really mean that in a negative way. Just a complicated fellow that he has an unusual life trajectory, and he has an unusual writing trajectory, too. Normally, people don't mix all of this up together like he like he did. It, it looks to me like it just came naturally, just from the kind of person that he was, but nevertheless, it's important to point out. So let's talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis. When I was growing up in New Jersey, I had only discovered him by accident through the church, actually. And they had some of his books around, and I was checking them out, and then I heard about the the Chronicles of Narnia. I wound up reading all seven of those books during the summertime. I can't tell you exactly what year, okay? But I I actually still own the original seven books. uh, paperback uh, novels of the Chronicle of Narnia series. Uh, so I, I've saved them uh, my, my whole life. One of the few original books I had from my childhood, actually. A lot of other ones I wanted to be either getting lost in transit of travel or, you know, when when my parents moved. and uh, So I didn't have a huge library when I was younger, believe it or not. I used the actual library itself and whatever I got from school and all that. It's not like today where, you know, books were cheaper and you could do things on the internet. And there's so many different options now. But they were the ones I originally had saved. I think I just carried them with me everywhere I went. I didn't even think I brought the, I even think I brought them with me when I went to, to the military. You know, and I even had them, uh, in, uh, in Germany. I wound up rereading them again. Which was actually fun. But I remember when I was talking to my teacher at school, and she was a wonderful woman, very, very bright, and, and read a lot. She had never heard of him before. She kept saying, you sure you don't mean Sinclair Lewis? I'm like, no, I really don't mean Sinclair Lewis. You know, I didn't have the heart to tell her that. Just like she didn't know who C.S. Lewis was, I didn't know who Sinclair Lewis was. I mean, we're talking about elementary school, so that wasn't even a uh, part of required reading yet until, I think, high school, actually. Um so no one seemed to know who he was when I was growing up, which was kind of funny in a way because, you know, I could see how um, how powerful the books were and how influential they could be. You know, I also noticed uh, two distinct things. And we're going to talk a little bit about more on Lewis's feelings on this because they're, uh, they're quite unusual. 
but I noticed they were they were written in certain levels. Like if you read Lord of the Rings, there's nothing to read the Lord of the Rings other than what's been written there. There's no real depth behind that, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm not saying that as some slur against uh, Tolkien. God bless him. But it's just really black and white. It's really just right there. And that's it. Yeah, you might want to go back to some appendixes now and then. Or even a few other books that might give you some, some of the prequel knowledge of what's going on with the rings and the past history and all that. But it's not necessary. You could do that, but it's not necessary. Because everything that had to be said was right there. Well, with Lewis on Chronicles of Narnia, it's completely different. Now, we'll talk about this a little later on because he simply either is not apparently aware of this or, you know, he's in denial. But you could read that book, and I did when I was, when I was much younger, as just a fantasy book, period. I had a lot of fun, you know, with the talking lion and the animals talking and then people fighting and then going on different voyages. And, I mean, it was just a lot of fun. Where... When I was an adult, I would say probably, uh, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years later from that, when I was like in my early 20s, when I was in Germany and I reread them, I can see all the Christian allegory. I can see that Aslan is the Christ figure. In fact, I don't even know how I missed that as a child when I was reading it. I'm like, let me get this straight here. He talks wise like Christ. He's leading everybody around. He winds up dying for somebody else's sins and then comes back to life because his father, who happens to be a creator of all things, didn't think that, you know, his death was warranted. Yeah, you're right. That has no connection with Christ at all. <laughs> but uh, that's, I don't know how I missed it, but I noticed it immediately when I read it as an adult. So you have a couple of different levels over there. You can read the book like a child's fantasy. Or you can read the book like an adult fantasy. An adult, you know, clean fantasy. Don't get weird on me here. Or you can also read it as a sort of Christian allegory. Uh, many of the lessons about making choices and how you're responsible for those choices. How oftentimes, uh, you know, emotions or, or depression or even jealousy can put you over into the evil side of things and you wind up getting stuck doing stupid things and serving masses that don't belong, you know, in your life, but you do it. And whether it's a gang leader or, uh, you know, drugs or, or in this case, a, a devil figure, it's really the same thing. And, um, how you could still come back from that, that it wasn't a lost cause still. One of the few messages I always felt in, in Star Wars that made sense. People kept saying, I don't understand it. Darth Vader's good, he's bad, he's good, he's bad. What's going on? It's confusing. No, it's not confusing. It's actually quite Christian, if you think about it. You know? you, if you think about all the things that um, Anakin Skywalker went through, you know, it's not hard to understand, actually. It, it really isn't. Because I think ultimately he was able to come back just like the character in Narnia was able to come back from evil is because they were essentially good people who made choices out of out of jealousy and, and, and fear more than they made choices out of malice or hatred. They wasn't trying to be that kind of figure. 
it just happened to them because of this horrible choices they make and you slide into that that's what happened with the skywalker figure and that's really what happened with that person over in, in, in chronicles of narnia so it's not really difficult to understand if you look at it that way i'm not saying this is the only interpretation in fact i've known people that they're not christian or even religious at all and they said hey i like the books i like the movies in fact the movies seem to be less christian in many ways than the books are it's almost like they purposely downplayed it and that's fine they're great movies actually and the books are wonderful too but i've known people that said you know mark i don't really catch the message you're talking about maybe i have to read between the lines maybe i, I gotta really look for it i'm like no i said don't don't look for anything you can't find don't worry about it you know i'm not trying to be you know a, a pain in the butt here i'm certainly not trying to be an anti-christian or whatever you might want to call that but uh you know, if it doesn't come leaping at you and you don't notice it, then you, you're probably not going to. And that's and that's fine. Uh, but there are different levels on that book. And it's amazing how that can be done. I just I always found that astounding because I haven't really found too many books that are like that at all. You know, In fact, and we'll talk about this next. He did a space trilogy and it's not, it's not like that at all. It, it really is science fiction. Now... There's been a number of people who did fantasy series. He's considered one of the epic family spheres as well as Lord of the Rings. There's but a few others. Okay, so C.S. Lewis is up there with that. All right. He was also one of the first people to really write a space trilogy. He's not really known for science fiction. In fact, you can get a group together of people who have read a, a number of C.S. Lewis's works. Uh, they'll read the Narnia, they'll read some of the books that are, that are non-fiction about uh, uh, Christian philosophy or uh, his his memoir, uh, I, or even, you can even watch the movie about his courtship with uh, with uh, Joyce uh, uh, Davidman. I think that's how you say her name. Let me see here a second. Yeah, it is Davidman. Uh, it's not Joyce, but Joy, Joy Davidman. And the movie they made about that, which was, you know... Um, something that was intellectual and went to love and and, and there's a lot of illness and death and just a beautiful movie all the way around about a, a short period in, in this time's man's life where you know he found love and lost it you know in the span of four years but you can get those people together and i swear i swear you're gonna get like let's say you had 20 people in the room you're gonna get like five people that said i didn't know he wrote any science fiction at all man what, what are you talking about <laughs> so you're gonna get that because it's it was his first works um if you like c.s lewis and the stuff he does and, and some of the paths he's wanted to take you know it, it's it's enjoyable and, and and nice to read okay but in terms of like the realm of science fiction it's not gonna really have the same impact and it didn't okay not like fantasy okay you could be the the, the biggest pagan atheist uh, communist on the planet <laughs> and really don't like about C.S. Lewis about anything, and you can still say, yeah, Chronicles of Narnia was it, man. It was a great fantasy series. He did his thing. So, it made his mark in fantasy. He did not make it in science fiction. But let's talk a little bit about this space trilogy, okay? Now, it was uh, three books. That's what a trilogy means. <laughs> I know. I, I had to just repeat that to myself. That's how silly we can get sometimes here, okay? All right, so we got three books. Uh, the first was called the uh, Out of the Silent Planet. All right. Now, what's very interesting about these books? 
the science fiction um, trilogy we're going to talk about here. And this is the funny thing. It could mean, it could really, really mean why it never became big in the science fiction world. Well, Lewis felt, because I guess he read a bunch of science fiction books that, that was done, he always felt it was too much involved with technology and robots and space aliens and all that stuff. He thought in many ways it was sort of dehumanizing, that the human figure really wasn't in it. He said it didn't make any sense to him that you're talking about the future and you're never really talking a lot about people. Now, I can tell you from an intellectual standpoint, I understand where he's getting at. And that's fine. And I like these science fiction books, don't get me wrong. But I agree with anyone else who has read all kinds of science fiction books. You know, they didn't make their mark and he didn't really... Uh, he just didn't really build anything big out of it, what he was trying to do in, in science fiction. And, you know, consequently, they were the only ones he ever did afterwards. That was it. He did that, and that was the end of the story on, on science fiction. Uh, next one is called uh, Palantra, and then, of course, the third one, uh, That Hideous Strength. I liked him a lot. You did have some uh, Christian biblical type of oratory in there, but it wasn't as heavy as Chronicles of Narnia was. It really was very human and very, very, very much about the characteristics uh, of, of humanity. And very much, I felt almost like, like a what if? What if the earth went in a different way? What if um, Adam and Eve didn't. Uh, decide to listen, you know, to the snake telling them about things. What if they decided to stay stay blind to who they were? Because he mentions in, in the book, and it is it is a Christian theme, and, and you might even want to call it a Christian theory, that for the for the best or for the worst, or however you might want to consider this, um, Adam and Eve were, were, were pretty much slaves to God. They were pretty much like robot flesh. They had no idea what was going on about anything. They just enjoyed their time and that was it. It was only when the snake talked to them about, you know, hey, don't you realize you're naked? You're running around here looking at your junk? And what's going on with this? And what's going on with that? And next thing you know, they've, you know, found shame and wind up lying to God. And next thing you know, they're cast out of there. And why are they cast out of there? Because now they're creatures of free will that now have to determine their own destiny. Where before, they were like creatures in a, in a zoo. You know, God made them and is looking at them. They're looking at God. They're looking at, you know, because remember, they even talked to God. They talked to the animals and this and that, although I didn't say the animals were talking back to them. But they were talking to the animals. And that was that. So I guess he was kind of wondering about it in a science fiction kind of way. Well, what if we went on a different path historically? What if we never left that, quote, bubble? Just created the world that way. It's interesting, but it just never really took off. I think it might have been just too much for, for people to handle. <laughs> I'm having a hard time handling it and trying to talk to you about it because it's, it's, it's pretty deep. But it, it just it just never made its impact, and and thankfully he did Chronicle Narnia because uh, he not not have been have a big career in a writer without it, <laughs> that's for sure. All right, let's talk a little bit about the background of of C.S. Lewis because a lot of people don't know this. In many ways, it was quite similar 
I think family oriented wise to Tolkien. And they later on became uh, great friends, uh, which is amazing. The two masters of fantasy were personal friends in real life, not correspondence like they hung out together, talked and smoked and, you know, all of that. You know, everybody smoked back down those pipes. So, um, uh, even though they grew in four different places, okay, uh, Tolkien in South Africa and. C.S. Lewis in Ireland, he was born in Belfast, he was Irish. They were considered British writers, and they, they, they grew up in the British system. They, they fought for the for Britain in the wars, both of them in World War One, And uh, they had very similar home lives in the sense that, um, you know, parents dying early and, and having to the, depend on the, the patronage of others, including a school system, to, to make some kind of a... Something out of themselves because they didn't have uh, any family or anyone left that could really pay for that education. But they were both smart, talented men, and that, that really helped them. And both of them were affected by World War One. We'll talk about this with C.S. Lewis here. Now, he's Irish, okay? Even though his uh, family had baptized him in the church, uh, he wound up moving away from that. He became an atheist. And one of the reasons he said he became an atheist is because, first, he was really diving into the, the mysticism and Celticism of, of Ireland. He wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, his Irish background. Which is unusual when you go to England to study, and England is not exactly fond of Ireland. It doesn't have a long, good history of that. I mean, they've been killing each other for centuries. I mean, they're at, they're at peace now, thankfully. You know, but... That was still going on, of course, in you know, in, in C.S. Lewis's life, and um, and we'll talk about that a bit too. So he goes to war in World War One. He goes to Somme. It's a, a place in France, a, a, a battlefield, one of the, considered the one of the worst, if not the worst, in the history of mankind. Literally, a million people died on one battlefield. In trenches. The Germans were merciless in their shells. They used chemical warfare. There was disease going on. Um, C.S. Lewis always had felt, just like Tolkien felt, that if he didn't get injured in, certain, in a certain fashion, in this particular case, well, Tolkien got trench, trench fever. He got a disease and wound up leaving out there, but almost everybody he knew was killed. And he went back to a home that had almost nobody left but him. And of course, Lewis had uh, had a very similar experience. Most of his friends died in the trench, in the trench warfare. Uh, he was um, he served there, and he wind up getting uh, injured by a British shell, what they would now call friendly fire. It misfired, and it wound up killing a bunch of his friends. It injured him. He had to go back to England, and he didn't return back to the war. He wound up finishing up his studies, you know, in, in college. But he was depressed by his injury. Uh, by not being back into the action, by his friends being killed, by uh, by uh, by a many of things in his life, he was just you know uh, uh, an angry and depressed person. So he wound up adopting atheism for some number of years. I think about close to twenty years actually. So he winds up becoming a, a, a professor, and he had made a pledge to one of his uh, one of his war buddies, a friend by the name of Patty. They made a pledge that if one of, the, one of them died, the other one would try to help take care of the family that they had, the best they could. So his patty friend died in World War One. So he wound up going to visit 
his mother. His mother was named Janie Moore. Okay, she was a woman that at that time would probably be like, I'd say, about twenty-five years older than he is. All right. There's a lot, and I'm not trying to create a scandal where there's not one, but there's been a lot, a lot of speculation about the true nature of their relationship. Um, one of his um, biographers, C.S. Lewis, and he's had a couple, uh, speculated that, that they, they, they were lovers for, for, some, for some period of time. Um, let's go with the facts, okay? The, and, and the facts are pretty simple, all right? He goes to take care of, uh, of Janie Moore. He actually starts living with her. They don't have the same bedroom. They have two different bedrooms, but they're very close. He even refers to her in in uh, conversation with his friends, um, classmates, uh, students later on in correspondence as a mother. In many ways, he she appears to be like his second mother. His mother had died early on of cancer, so. He never had a full and long relationship with his mother. And his father, uh, from what I read over there, is, is pretty much an eccentric guy that's pretty distant and just not much of a father. Just like Tolkien in many ways, the, the parental bonds were, were not really there. They sort of fell apart early and these people were on their own. Does that mean uh, that that might lend you more to the creative, uh, you know, virtues of life? Does that mean that you can now create all the worlds because your own world and your many ways been ruined? I don't really know. I'm not trying to be a psycho psychologist on the show. I will say, though, that that sort of experience does lend itself to that type of writing. It's not unusual. We've seen it plenty of times. I'm not saying it's a perfect formula. I'm not saying you take some child, mess up their life, and have their parents be dead or screwed up, and now they suddenly become genius writers, okay? It doesn't work that way. If you guys ever remember that movie, Boys from Brazil, you had a bunch of Nazis over there in Brazil uh, in, the, in the 60s believing that if they could raise a German child and, and put him in an abusive relationship with, with parents that didn't care for him and, and just raise him around hate, and, and violence and everything else, they can actually create themselves another Hitler that could possibly take over the world. Well, it doesn't work that way, and they found out the stupid way that doesn't work either, other than ruining some child's life. But uh, it's the same thing. So it's not a perfect formula, right? So he refers to that. There is always been, and there's probably always going to be, a, a tug of war on what really went on over there. Um, many people who are close to him just couldn't see it. They couldn't see how he could be sleeping with a woman that much older than him um, and, and still be calling her mother. Others said, well, maybe he was doing that, but he still felt in a way she was kind of motherly because of, you know, her taking care of him. In many ways, she took care of him more than he took care of her. And I don't mean in that way. I mean, just in terms of you know, life in general, having some place to stay, someone to encourage you in your studies, in your school, eventually in your teaching, and then in your writing. Uh, it could have been, it could just be that. We don't really know. Many people, although, uh, do believe that, you know, they had some sort of a relationship uh, of, a, of a romantic type. What we do know for sure is this. We know this for sure, because these are the facts. This is historically proven. He kept his word to his, his war buddy, Patty, and took care of the guy's mother. 
whatever she went through, he was there. She needed money, she needed food, she needed help. Later on, she wound up uh, getting dementia, having to go to a, a psychiatric facility, and he visited her all the time, right up until the day she died. So, we know that he was honorable in that fashion of keeping word to 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 his, his buddy. Anything else happened? It's just obviously speculation. You know, she wasn't she wasn't married. He wasn't married. So if anything like that did occur, you know, I'm not really seeing the scandal in all of it. Okay, remember he wasn't even a Christian at the time. He was still an atheist. I'm not giving him rationalizations to say this is okay <laughs> because I'm not sure if it's not okay either. I really don't know whether that's. I know back in his day. Something like that would probably be a bit scandalous. Something like that would probably be seen odd. And you would have a stigma to it. Because, you know, when you're 45 years old, apparently you're not supposed to have sex. <laughs> you know? And if you're 19, you're not supposed to have sex with someone who's older. I don't know. Apparently they uh, they uh, they missed uh, the, 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 the graduate. <laughs> Just joking. That movie came out well after this. But um, that, that's what that was about, really. And how people, you know, use that as a theme and speculate it all the time. But hey, that was an unusual part of his life. And it was always during those those times when he was still trying to formulate who he wanted to be, what he wanted to do. And that was part of his life at that particular time. Now, he winds up putting together the Chronicles of the Narnia. And like I said before, it has so many different levels. Ironically, C.S. Lewis does not agree at all. In fact, he actually says that he didn't think it had a strong Christian message at all. He said, and this is a quote to him, I'm an expert on the subject of allegory, and I maintain that the books were not allegory. He called them a new, new, uh, a new term. He called them, they had Christian aspects of suppositional. I know, a lot to process in listening to that. And funny enough, he shared the same thing I felt that Tolkien shared. Tolkien literally said into his letters even, besides the people's faces, the Lord of the Rings have nothing to do with post-stress, has nothing to do with World War One, has nothing to do with my experiences and nothing. It's just a fantasy story, and because I like languages, I created some languages in there too. Thank you for buying my book. Have a good day. I'm going to go smoke my pipe. To his dying day, that's what he said. Yet it's evident throughout the Lord of the Rings that one ring, the one world war, to end all wars, that's what that was about. And the fellowship he had with his soldier friends, and the mission they had to go to to try to find and stop something. This is all the journey of this man's life when he got out of the war, the war, and when he got out of the war, going into the, to, to writing this and, and, and dealing with depression and, and all of that. And just like, to a certain extent, just like uh, Tolkien, he relied on his faith to help him through things. Although Tolkien was a, was a devout Catholic his entire life, from a child onward. Where, of course, uh, Sirius Lewis didn't actually uh, find his faith until he was 39, much later in life. Okay? But nevertheless, they, they, they used the faith to help them to deal with 
with uh, what they would have called shell shock back then. Now we call it, you know, post-stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. Does this mean that these men are lying? No. I, I haven't found anything in either one of these people, particularly C.S. Lewis, that indicates that he was interested in, in deception uh, on any level. He was actually honest to a fault. Um, does this mean that they're so close to so many things that they're doing that they could be blind to it? That's a real possibility. Yeah. Real, a real possibility. Although, I still find it difficult, even with the blindness that we're talking about over here, to miss certain things in chronic gonorrhea and, and not realize it. To not make... I mean, you're making Aslan Christ in the story. No, he's not. It's a little difficult to, to take. Because this is the guy that wrote it. <laughs> and he's not being tongue-in-cheek. He's being serious. No, it's not. So amazing. It really is. Tolkien, on the other hand, even though he denied this and, and, and extensively, uh, if you ever read uh, the volume of his letters that were edited by his son, Christian, who also um, wind up uh, helping uh, finish one of his uh, one of his last books before he died, the Similarian. Um, he alluded that later in life he started seeing some things that people would have mentioned about how that could have been some of his experiences. So towards the end of his life, he was starting to see and admit that that was the case. It wasn't a full blown commission uh, confession, okay, or admission, but. He was starting to see it. C.S. Lewis said he never saw it, and that was his last statement on it. So I'll just take him at his word. He just didn't see it. But I see it, and many other people do too. Now, he becomes a Christian. He said that in his memoir about the whole experience, Surprised by Joy, that um, it overtook him one day, that... All the things that he was doing, you know, up until that point, was leading him towards that. Was leading him away from, you know, a, a life of, of not believing in anything other than, you know, uh, tales and, and superstitions of, of the of the Irish, uh, you know, heritage that that he was. And they're still very helpful. Don't get me wrong. All of these folklore, because both him and Tolkien needed it in many ways for help help with the books they created. You know, in fact, uh, Tolkien was so versed in languages, he, he translated Beowulf, the German classic, you know, in, into English. And many people for many years used the Tolkien translation to help them understand the book. So it wasn't an unusual thing to have knowledge and appreciation and even respect of things that were non-Christian and still use them in works that can be considered a bit Christian. Although no one really ever accused the Lord of Rings of being anything Christian-like. It still had a few things here and there, but for the most part it wasn't. Now Tolkien winds up, after I guess he feels more established as a Christian, he starts exploring it, like I guess anybody would. But he's a writer, so he starts exploring it in the, in the written type of way. He winds up writing a number of books that became extremely uh, popular for people to try to like get an, get an idea about Christianity. It, it was almost like 
and excuse me for putting it this way, but you know how they have those book series like, you know, dummies for plumbers or plumbers or dummies or, you know, I mean, uh, the dummies guide to fixing your car. Yeah, that sort of thing. Well, in many ways, some of, of, of C.S. Lewis's books was like that. It was like the dummies guide to Christianity. He was kind of giving you the amateur sort of view on it, how he kind of looked at it. How it could be useful. It was that way. He, he, he did it that way. So he wasn't, cause you know, he was in many ways a theologian, but a lay theologian. He wasn't, wasn't somebody that was ever uh, a minister in the church and ever got his degree or doctorate in that or ever, ever became a, a leader in the church movement. But in terms of thinking and in terms of writing, he was pretty serious about that. And many of the things he written had a huge impact on people. You could say that in many ways he had more of an impact for people in Christianity and sometimes people in the churches, which I'm not particularly surprised about. I'm really not. Because I think sometimes the uh, the church itself forgets for the good and for the bad uh, that if it has any, or any mission at all out there to help bring some pe more people into it, you know, it, it needs to make it more relevant to their lives. And you have a lot of people in the church, and the Catholic Church is really big on this, that they, they feel like, no, it, it can't change, and don't worry about it. A, we're going to be here. The world always changes. We're the same. But in case you look, you know, and I'm not predicting anybody's demise here, and I'm not wishing that the church is ending, but if you look at the attendance, and you look at people who subscribe to this anymore, it, it's on a massive decline. I'm thinking Europe right now, there's probably more people that are adherents to Islam than they are Christianity. So it, 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 it's part of our, our own problem that we haven't spent enough time making it relevant out there. And making it relevant doesn't mean you know, you're changing the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're, you're, putting, you're putting words in Christ's mouth in the Bible. Yes, have a microwave with your TV dinner and listen to your parents. I mean, no, no one's saying that. But it is apparent that you got a lot of people out there, even if they're not Christian, who could say in deep sincerity without even trying to be sardonic or, or ironic, I can appreciate Christ, but I don't get what these Christians are all about. Or like my father used to say, I love Christ, but I'm not too sure about them Christians. I hear this over and over again. I hear it through history. I hear it through modern talk. I hear it from writers. I hear it from just people who are just disappointed in Christianity. So, you hear it enough to have to wonder about, you know, how seriously should I take that? Well, I've actually taken it seriously because more times than not, I, I just found the Christians to be poor ambassadors for Christ. And I, I envision sometimes uh, Christ is in the corner with his hand uh, on his head going, oh man, this is supposed to be one of my followers? What what happened on this deal? <laughs> I'm not even trying to make a joke. I'm serious. <laughs> you know? There's uh, the, 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 the lack of love for people who, who might practice their life or their love differently. And, and there's the, uh, you know, the, the, the eternal damnation and, and judgment for things that maybe people need to go through before they can go through out of it. 
It might not be biblical. It might just be a, a song lyric. But yeah, sometimes people have to go to hell before they get to heaven. <laughs> That's just a, a fact of life I've seen from all kinds of people. I, I would say even myself. So, but to not have a measure of tolerance, and I don't mean tolerance in the political word, which has lost so much meaning that I don't even know what it means anymore. It's just it's become dumb. But I mean, just intolerance of spending enough time to try to understand somebody's viewpoint, or understand where they're at in life, or understand anything else. It doesn't seem to be there anymore. It just seems like you have to read off a cue card, and as long as you get all, all those points uh, down, you're good to go. Or 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 or, or the, the Jesus counter Jesus in your discussion, uh, you know, argument. You know, I remember one time I, I heard someone say. I think it was only a couple of years ago. Um, well, you know, the guy never mentions Jesus, so I just can't even believe that he's really a Christian or, or actually a pastor. He's just a secular dude with a tie on talking about God sometimes. Yeah. So apparently, if you don't mention Jesus 87,000 times in a sermon, you're not a, you're not a Christian. So these weird, these weird strange slants... They don't help anybody. They don't help a non-believer. In many ways, they don't actually help a believer either. It's just to me, it's just dumb, dangerous, stupid talk. It, it really is. It makes no sense at all. If people are practicing this Christianity to the best of their ability, and they, they're catching the things that are necessary about trying to lead a, lead a decent life and trying to be charitable and trying to be a loving person, well then, I don't know why it's necessary that. Yeah, you know, if you didn't remember to, to mention Jesus now and then, that now there's something wrong with you. I say this because I've been around plenty of people who said Jesus a thousand times, and later on they're they're at the bar or cheating on their on their wife or cursing or doing all kinds of offensive things, backstabbing people at work. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay, great, thanks. So I don't know what that's supposed to mean, and more importantly, I'm not really sure what that's supposed to measure. And again, I got that vision of Christ in the corner sitting on a stool with his hand on his head going, you got to be kidding me, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, really. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to mean a jokester. I mean, so these sort of things, they don't help anybody. So I think this internal conflict that's in Christianity has seriously damaged it. If it's ever going to fix itself or not, I don't know. But I know that there's, there's damage there. And I, and I know that... There's just simply too many people uh, w with too many ideas about what to get done, and most of them, even if the ideas are diverse, they don't even practice that. I mean, really, it comes down to, if you're willing to preach it, you you got to be willing to practice it. You know why? Because guess what? Other people who are hearing, they're not going to watch. And if they don't see what they think they should be seeing, you know, they're down the road, and who can blame them? Because that adage, practice what you preach, it's not just for Christianity, it's for anything in our lives. Anything we talk about on a regular basis. You know? You talk about you don't drink and you just like to drink water and alcohol is bad and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And you're in the bar, you know, on the weekend getting sloshed. You know, not helpful. Who's going to take you seriously about anything? And that's really what that comes from. 
I think in many aspects of those, C.S. Lewis was a good practicing Christian, trying to learn his best and to do what he felt was important for his life and his writing and his conscience, and also to try to like spread out his version of what Christianity could be to somebody who maybe didn't practice it. World War II started kicking in. And he was pretty much much older than your average recruit, but the recruiting people didn't want him. They rejected him. They actually said, you should go work as a writer for us to help us out in the war effort. And he's like, no, I'm not into propaganda. I'm a writer. He thought it was just a bunch of lies and it's not helpful. So he wound up falling into broadcasting. And during the war, he produced a number of broadcast shows they were all along the lines of his famous book, Mere Christianity, where he's talking about just the fundamental basics of, of, of Christ's life, of, of Christian uh, teachings, about how you can apply this. And uh, they, I think the Royal Air Force wind up uh, praising him for having shows that really helped perk up people's imaginations and helped him to gain some faith, helped him to stay strong in a, in a horrible battle. You know, if you thought World War One was horrible for the British soldier, World War Two is an entirely different, different creature. The Germans were never going to be able to cross over in in Somme to get you. The trench warfare made it impossible. Nobody actually met anybody, anybody in battle. People wind up dying from disease and shells, uh, starvation, um, chemical warfare. Not a whole lot of "I see you, I shoot you, you die." Was a whole lot of that. World War II is a whole different thing. World War II is, not only does the enemy not have to see you, which ironically the enemy is still Germany, <laughs> but uh, the, the enemy doesn't even have to be near you. They could just shoot a rocket from Germany, land into your city, and burn people to death. Thousands died that way from those V-2 rockets. I think it's V-1 and V-2 rockets. So uh, a, whole new, a whole new world of technology has came out where people could just sit at home and die. Not even be in the war. It's just amazing. So those broadcasts really help people. Uh, people in in the uh, the train tunnels hiding from the from the rockets coming in. Soldiers out there doing their best. Airplane pilots, all kinds of folks. So he he really did a great job as a broadcaster, doing that, uh, trying to help in, in his own manner. In the, in the war effort because they wouldn't let him do anything else. He did work uh, and volunteer on the Home Guard, which is sort of like the little National Guard of, of Britain, just in your local area. So I think he probably helped put out fires and helped pass out food and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Because remember, London particularly was on fire any, any, any given hour of the day for, for weeks at a time. Hitler had this strange idea that because the British who at heart were pretty much bigoted about lots of things in the world and had lots of colonies which they mistreated on a racial basis. I'm not telling you anything controversial here. This is just the truth of history. Hitler felt, well, shit, I could get these people on my side. I got an entire culture that could be helping me back me up so we could take over the world together. Hitler actually thought this. He said, I don't even want to invade them. I just want to scare them enough to get them on our side so they can they can involve us. If you know anything about uh, the history of uh, of England at all, especially during these times, they actually had a they actually had a politician over there that actually was a fascist and had a fascist party and thought Hitler was a good idea. 
he actually gained some traction there for a while. And guess what? He lost everything and winds up committing suicide when people realize, wow, Hitler really isn't a good guy. He's burning out cities with rockets. How the hell is that a good thing? How is this supposed to be a great guy? People are like, the hell with that. And they were, they were done with him. That was the end of the story. But he, he had some traction for a couple of years there. So people wised up. So he did his part the best he could do. And, and obviously you're always going to be proud of something like that is, you know, in many ways a, a kind of a veteran of two wars. So he's done with all that. He gets involved in these whole books. Many of them are what you would want to call uh, Christian theological books. They're nonfiction. Okay. Uh, Mere Christianity is one of them. It's a really big one. It's to this day and still in print and, and a huge, huge bestseller. Okay. Another one called Miracles. Uh, another one called uh, The Great Divorce. Another one called The Problem of Pain. These are really influential books. And of course, in 1955, he wind up, he winds up, uh, doing the, the memoir Surprised by Joy. How he became a Christian and all of that. He winds up getting, he winds up getting rebaptized in the Church of Ireland. Tolkien, who was a very close friend of him, was actually disappointing in this because he was like, man, I was really hoping he'd become a Catholic. But, in many aspects of the character of C.S. Lewis, he was ultimately a Protestant, and that's that's the line he took. Now, C.S. Lewis, as you can tell, is unusual in a lot of different ways. I mean, is he a sci-fi writer? Is he a fantasy writer? Is he a Christian apologist? Is he is he a, a theologian? You know, maybe he's all of those. No one really knows exactly what to call him because he's so diversified on so many different fronts. But the one thing that he never wasn't, which makes him extremely unusual, is political. C.S. Lewis is about as apolitical as you can get. I mean, he did not care. He stood away from it. He just was not impressed with it. He didn't even have any important statements. Like, he didn't have a political statement against politics. He didn't even have that. That's amazing. It truly is. And lots of critics of his work always thought that it was unusual. In fact, they had to dig stuff into this guy just to try to find something that they think was political. Because they're like, he has to be political. He's got a secret to be something else. They just didn't understand that he simply wasn't. Now, he never made a public statement on it. He just didn't care. He never made any statements at all about it. So you got one critic that said, ironically, he said, hey, I think he's more of a stubborn Protestant on the British side of things instead of the Irish side of things. Even though he's Irish because he wanted to picking a type of Christianity that's human men go across the board. Because C.S. Lewis is one of the rare writers in Christianity that didn't pick a particular branch of of Christianity to talk about. Well, I think Methodism should be this, that, 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 and this is how I'm going to interpret everything. He went across the board on all the different branches. It didn't bother him at all that they were out there. He kind of made it all, 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 not, I would say all the same, but in many ways, he kind of like glossed over many of the different differences of the distinct branches of Christianity in order to get across the fundamental core message 
of Christianity, what he adopted. So in many ways, he wound up writing and preaching some of the ways that he came to Christianity himself, which I call another way of practicing what you preach, you know. But there was actually critics that didn't like that. They wanted him to be on this side of that, on this side of this, and this. He, he wasn't. He wasn't political in life, on the social realm of things, or the academic realms of things, and he wasn't even political in the religious side of things. The guy was just not political at all. And if you want a final piece of evidence about that, here we go. I thought this was really, really telling uh, when I find it over here. Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay. All right. In 1951, King George VI named C.S. Lewis Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE. Okay? He declined it. Because he didn't like... It's obvious he didn't like this privately. He just never made a public statement about it. He didn't like the political issues that was going on between England and Ireland. So obviously, he's an Irish guy. He knows what's going on. He knows about the troubles. He knows about some of the so the, the, the military actions in Ireland and, and the oppression and, and all of that. And none of that changed after World War II, which is ironic because, remember, the, the, um, the British Empire shrank significantly after World War II. India you know, got, got, got rid of them. A lot of the colonies in Africa started to leave. So they were losing a lot of that. They didn't lose Ireland. They kept on to it. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of Irish, even if they worked in England, even if they associated with England, I'm sure privately that that could not be an easy thing to deal with or to handle and to not have some sort of discontent about. I don't want to call it the grudge because we don't have any evidence about his feelings on this at all. We don't know. But for him to turn that down, such an enormous honor from England for his teaching, for his writing and everything like that. It just tells you something about what he felt, you know. I'm hesitant to call him some kind of Irish patriot or or, or some kind of, uh, you know, I guess you could say a disciple of, of, of Ireland or, or even in his own way, his own type of secret political statement. I don't know. But I do know that, again, he was not with the politics at all, and this is just a, a final indication of, of this sort of thing. He just was not with it. All right. So, unlike many things in, 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 this, in this guy's life, everything seems to come later. <laughs> it's just amazing how that works out for him, you know? But that's just who C.S. Lewis was, okay? He came to Christianity late in his life. He came to, to writing and getting successful in it late in his life. Became a, a, a professor that, that was renowned, a, a real expert on, on not only philosophy, but theology late in his life. Well, he falls in love with a woman publicly. Because remember, we don't know much about the other woman. Late in his life. He started... Um, a correspondence, and then later a, a, a physical uh, connection. I don't mean romantically. I mean just that they were talking and conversing and all that. With uh, Joy David Grisham. Okay? 
Joy David Grishman was a writer of American writer of Jewish abstract. She used to be a communist and wind up converting to Christianity. She uh, she separated from her alcoholic abusive husband, divorced him. She went to England, and in many ways, she became his friend and what many would call an agreeable intellectual companion. Um, and I, you know, I I don't make C.S. Lewis to me a saint. He's a human being like all of us. Okay, so he had many of the impressions that a man would have back in those days. That most women are not really the intellectual equal to men. But he found that she was. So he was not only delighted by that, you know, in many ways he was surprised, you know. So I'm, I'm, hopefully he found more later in his life. I don't know. But he definitely found her and he was like, wow. She's smart. She's pretty. She's interesting. Kind of hard to blame him. He winds up, he winds up entering a civil marriage contract, which is pretty much, you know, you get married at the Civil War, at the Civil, Civil, at the, excuse me, at the City Hall. But, ironically, he's doing it more to help her stay in England and for them to hang out than anything else. It's almost like they're not really in love yet or gotten to that stage yet. They're sort of disinfatuated with each other. I know it's unusual. How do you get married to somebody, even in the civil way, I don't know if I love you yet, but I want you to stay around here and hang out with me and we'll figure it out. It's positively Indian, I'm telling you, in terms of like, you know, uh, having the arranged thing happen and then later on you become lovers. Sometimes you don't, but then sometimes you do. It almost feels like that. So that actually occurred. And they got married in 1956. Okay? Um... Unusually, uh, it wasn't but a couple years later she started having some hip pain and finds out that she has bone cancer. It's diagnosed as terminal bone cancer. He takes care of her the best of the ability and later on, I guess because of the, the, the closeness of, of that type of care and everything that goes on, they wind up actually falling in love and they wind up actually getting... A Christian marriage, which he now finds difficult to happen because the Church of England is not really absolutely happy about you marrying somebody that's already divorced. He wound up finding a friend that actually did a Christian marriage for him, a, a pastor, and they actually get married in, in the Christian manner, which he wanted to do with her. I think that that became more for him. I, it's almost like he didn't really care about the civil union thing. It was more like a, a legal instrument. But when he fell in love with her, he was ready to do it. He went Christian, and that's what he did. They actually got married while she was still in bed sick. Not long after, she goes into a remission of cancer. They spend as much time as they can with her children, seeing England, doing all kinds of interesting things, traveling and everything like that, until unfortunately her cancer reoccurs. They're only together four years and she dies. Something strange happens. During this whole thing. C.S. Lewis writes a book. It's called The Grief Observed. If you ever have somebody that dies in your family. Or somebody dies close to you. You might want to get this book. It, it kind of gives you a lot of information. And explanation about. What you go through. You know what's going on. Maybe ways you can sort of lessen it. And handle it. And live with it. And move on. It's just almost like an instruction book. For grief. C.S. Lewis was so private 
about this particular book, unlike anything else he wrote before, that he got it published in another name instead of his own. He got it published in N.W. Clerk. No one knew he wrote it. Upon hearing the death of his wife months afterwards, when he started re reconnecting in the social you know, realm, C.S. Lewis is a very social man. He had lots and lots of friends. Friends in the church, friends in academia, friends from the, from, from the war efforts, friends in the military, people who were fans of his books. I mean, the man had people everywhere. So, you know, it took him a while to go back recirculating with some of these people. When he did, he literally had people saying, hey, listen, I no doubt you're down in the dumps because your wife died and, you know, you didn't get married to her for very long, but you should check out this book called uh, A Grief Observed. It would help you. He literally had people recommending the book to him that he wrote. That's how much influential it was and how little people realized he wrote it. Incredible. He never told anyone, ever, even when they made that appeal to him about reading the book, that he wrote the book. No one ever knew he wrote the book until after his death, when he instructed his estate in his will that it was okay that that can go be put back into his name. Until then, it, no one ever knew about it. That's how priority he was about that, and I just... You know, he's an older man. He finds love, literally, in a complicated way, like everything else he seems to have found in a complicated way, and makes the best of it. And that's that's that. And uh, but you know, if you think about it, after you listen to the show, some of the things we talked about, it's typical C.S. Lewis. I, w I would say that would be the case. If anything, this this man is consistent. I'll tell you that. It's pretty incredible. Now, Lewis, after she had died, became like the stepfather to her two sons. She had two sons. Her and Lewis never had children of their own. And C.S. Lewis never had children at all. These two boys he raised after, after, the, after his wife's death. Okay? He, uh, he did his best to help them to understand their faith. Even though he was very Christian in his manner towards them, uh, they were they were still observant Jews, and they didn't actually go the way of their mother who converted to Christianity. They wind up going to the faith of their father, who was the novelist uh, William, uh, William Grisham, and he helped them to do that. He helped them to, to support them the best way he can. And they were very appreciative of that, that, and they always had a an excellent um, uh, a viewpoint of them. And um, he actually um, he actually left them money in his estate to carry on to help in their lives and everything. So he did the best he can to be a stepfather, you know, to to them. And I know they were appreciative and always had the fondest thing to say about somebody who or turned to be a Christian and helped them become the Jews that they were trying to become, you know, in their faith. So, again, a very a very uh, decent man that, uh, again, practices what we should be doing and what I mentioned before in the show, a real tolerance. Not the political silly word that doesn't mean anything. Something real. That you're not trying to spend your time converting somebody who seems they have a, 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 a deep abiding wish in something else. 
well, as a decent Christian, you, you try to help them get there. I mean, in the end, Christ was a Jew. We're all still playing to the same God. So, to me, it, 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 it should be a no-brainer. Unfortunately, some people complicate things more than, than they need to, and that's that's one of the silly things of, of us as people and as Christians that they need to get corrected, unfortunately. It would be nice if that happens one day. When? I don't really know. Now, one of the last things I'd like to talk about is, is, is what was, it's more, it's more I call the fun thing. I really like it a lot. Um, so, C.S. Lewis joins a group of writers, some of the most famous writers in, in the history okay, of mankind are in this group. They call themselves the Inklings. Almost all of them have a sort of uh, abiding faith in Christianity. But I wouldn't call them all Christian writers because, again, almost none of these uh, fellows even wrote in, uh, anything Christian at all or anything religious. All right, so you had uh, people here like um, G.K. Chesterton. He was actually a, a, a super conservative Catholic who did write some religious things, but not to the extent of C.S. Lewis. Of course, you got Tolkien, who didn't write anything religious at all. Tolkien was like the the, the mirror opposite of Saint Louis, uh, of 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 C.S. Lewis. He, he was just unbelievably opposite. Because here's a guy that, unless you observed him going to mass, or unless you heard him him speak at at, at church on a, on a private basis, or just noticed the kind of manner of a man that he was, you wouldn't even know that he was a very religious fellow at all, because he never wrote anything about it. Never. So, just really different on how people can can be, and it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. It really is. All right. So here we got here. Let me go. Let me list list over here. All right. So we got Tolkien. You got Gia Chesterton. Um, I know we got um, another one over here. Is it Digwell? Yeah, Digwell. So yeah, a number of, of, of important writers there of England that he hung out with together. They all smoked, uh, you know, their pipes and, uh, hanging out in, in, in like, uh, uh, they used to have like smoking rooms with, with nice benches and some books in, in universities. I don't even know if they have those things anymore. They're probably ancient, <laughs> objects of, of a former time, but, you know, that's what they had back then and that's what those guys would get together and, and do. So Lewis was the only one of the entire group that was uh, super like religious in terms of uh, expressing it and writing about it and, and practicing it and all of that. He was also the only one there that was that was Irish in culture. Everyone else was actually uh, English. Even though Tolkien grew up in South Africa, um, his his uh, his parents were uh, British and South African combined. So you know you could say he was part South African, but. You know, I, I, even though he was born there, all his manners, all his speaking, all everything about Tolkien was, to me, about as British as you can get. So, you know, other than him being born there, that was, he was, he, he was definitely a, a British guy. I love the group because they talked a lot about, uh, they talked a lot about their writing and, and God and, and, and actually help influence each other. 
Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an interesting small book called Screw Tape Letters. It's a conversation between two demons about how they can mess up humanity and all the stupid things that humans do to fall into the devil's trap, so to speak. You know, a big metaphor on, on human frailty. And he said that in many instances he thought that uh, Tolkien helped inspire him because some of the stories that Tolkien would tell him about things that he was working on. So look at like that. It actually helped him with a, with a book on that. So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing it really is, and of course Tolkien I think got a lot of ideas from from people what they're talking with as well. Now, on the final note, and I don't want to sound weird or creepy, but it's just it's just a fact, okay? Huxley falls ill. Um, excuse me. Um, C.S. Lewis falls ill, okay, and later he dies. Of kidney failure, okay. He, he's only sixty-four, so he didn't have a long life. Long, but not you know. I felt long enough, but but as famous as this guy was, and as much as he was loved, his death gets completely glossed over in the media because it wasn't but an hour after he died that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The same day John F. Kennedy is assassinated is the same day C.S. Lewis dies and so does Alice Huxley, another one of my big favorites and who we'll definitely do a show on in the, you know, in the months ahead. We talked about him a number of times, big influence over my own life, especially regarding uh, you know, technology and you know, some of its uh, dangerous uh, aspects. But um, I thought that was curious. Somebody actually even wrote an entire book just about this. It's called Between Heaven and Hell, a dialogue between the Beyond Death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Alex Huxley. They actually wrote a book about all three characters because they all happened to die on the same day. Two of them naturally, and then the other one, of course, was assassinated. I know it's 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 spooky and, and, and unusual. It really is because if you think about it, these are great great writers that had a huge impact on their generation and in many ways the world. Huxley is just as much as as, as C.S. Lewis. Ironically, Huxley was always the man that was looking for God in the metaphysical manner and always looking to to find a, you know if there was a, a philosophy or there was some secret out there that might kind of give him evidence to God because he was uh, not what I would call an atheist actually he was more of a what they call um, a uh, a person that leaves the room of possibility that you know God could exist but um the, the mirror opposite in many ways of uh, of C.S. Lewis, and to have that happen on that same day, it's just it's just it's just incredible. Um, so you got John F. Kennedy being assassinated by a crazy communist uh, sniper, and you have uh, C.S. Lewis dying from kidney failure, and you have Alex Huxley dying from tongue cancer. Didn't even die in England; actually died in Arizona because that was better for his uh, for his health
All right, folks, I hope that helped enlighten a bit uh, to everyone out there about C.S. Lewis, uh, his books, his, his message, his, his impact, his, his life, how, um, I don't know if you want to call it complicated, but it, it didn't have the normal straight path of most people. It, it certainly had a lot of zigs and zags, that's for sure, you know. It, it wouldn't be what you would call, you know, the, uh, the, the, the straight line you know, from here to there, like other people have. It was uh, an amazing uh, adventure and all that he was able to accomplish from all, from all of that and still find a measure of peace and happiness in his life when he started off not having so much. All right, folks. That is Strength to be Human. This is Mark Antin Rossi. Thoughts on uh, C.S. Lewis. God bless and good night. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.